Please bow your heads and pray with me. Almighty God, righteous King, you are the just judge of all. How we praise you for your saving work on the cross and how we praise you for making your character and your commands known to us through your word. Help us now, Holy Spirit, to hear what you have to teach us through this passage of Esther. Give us listening ears and teachable hearts. And Father, I ask that you would give me, your servant, your wisdom and your words, so that my teaching might be profitable to all who hear it. This I ask in the mighty name of our resurrected King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Don't you love watching the bride and groom dance their first dance at a wedding? It is often the highlight of a wedding reception. My son and his bride danced their first dance to, you're the best thing that ever happened to me. It brought tears to this mama's eyes. They chose that song because of what it says about their love and their relationships. Most brides take great care to choose just the right song for this big moment. Popular wedding songs include classics like At Last by Etta James or I Can't Take My Eyes Off of You by Frankie Valli. More modern selections include Amazed by Lone Star or Marry Me by Bruno Mars. But it may surprise you to know that wedding songs are nothing new. Psalm 45 is a wedding song. It was written for a royal wedding and was likely used for many royal weddings throughout the history of Israel. While most of the Psalms are written in praise of the God of Israel as Creator, Redeemer, and Lord, this Psalm is written in praise of the King of Israel and His Bride-to-be. While it was written on the occasion of a royal wedding, there's no hint about whose royal wedding. Or is there? Of this psalm, Charles Spurgeon says, Some here see Solomon and Pharaoh's daughter only. They are short-sighted. Others see both Solomon and Christ. They are cross-eyed. Well-focused spiritual eyes see here Jesus only. A closer look and it becomes beautifully clear that this is the royal wedding of Jesus and his bride. But King Jesus, the bridegroom, is the central focus. The writer of this wedding song is bursting with love for this glorious bridegroom. He says, beautiful words stir my heart. I will recite a lovely poem about the king, for my tongue is like the pen of a skillful poet. You are the most handsome of all. Gracious words stream from your lips. God himself has blessed you forever. The writer extols great love for the bridegroom, his majesty, and his righteousness, saying, In your majesty, ride out to victory, defending truth, humility, and justice. Go forth to perform awe-inspiring deeds. It's quite a groom. In Esther chapter 1, verses 10 through 22, we have a bride and we have a groom, but this couple has lost that loving feeling. King Ahasuerus's beautiful bride, Vashti, 
publicly disobeys her groom, and he proves to be the king of overkill rather than the king of Persia. Truth, humility, and justice is completely lost, and a family disagreement turns into a national crisis. What a stark contrast they draw to the true bridegroom and his bride. Jesus Christ loves his bride with an everlasting love which moves him to lay down his life for her. His bride is inspired by his sacrificial love to do whatever he says joyfully, a response of love to the lover of her soul. The truth that we draw from this passage in Esther is that obedience to God's commands is inspired by Christ's sacrificial love. We're going to look at that wonderful truth in two divisions, refusal and repercussions. So our first division is refusal, Esther chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. If you want to open your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Verses 10 through 11. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizda, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abtha, Zethar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Bashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. The first thing to note is that the great feast is still occurring. That's the one we studied about two weeks ago. Now, this was probably the second seven-day feast as Queen Vashti is hosting a feast for the women at the same time. Second, the king is drunk. His guests were probably drunk as well. It was the seventh day of drinking without compulsion and each man doing as he pleased. That is a recipe for complete depravity. Most pastors and commentators use this passage to teach against the dangers of alcohol consumption. However, this loses the author's original intent, which is a satirical stab at the ridiculousness of the earthly king compared to the heavenly king of kings. Additionally, when viewed in the cultural context of ancient Persia, we learned that excessive drinking was an essential element to planning a war, and that is exactly what King Ahasuerus was doing. The Persians believed that intoxication put them in closer contact with the gods. They consumed alcohol when they deliberated matters concerning their kingdoms. Herodotus writes, it is also their general practice to deliberate upon affairs of weight when they are drunk. And then, when they are sober, the decision to which they came the night before is put before them by the master of the house. And if it is then approved of, they act on it. If not, they set it aside. Sometimes, however, they are sober at their first deliberation. And in this case, 
they always reconsider the matter under the influence of wine. So the king and all his guests were intoxicated, drunk. In this merry state, the king decides to send seven eunuchs to fetch Queen Vashti and carry her in on a royal litter wearing her royal crown. He wanted to display her striking beauty to the men of Susa. Now remember, he was displaying all the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Alas, his bride, the beautiful Vashti, wearing her royal crown, was merely another of the king's treasures. Contrast King Ahasuerus with the king of kings. King Jesus is not drunk, power-hungry, or self-centered. He is righteous, all-powerful, and altogether lovely. His love for us is unconditional, extravagant, eternal, and sacrificial. King Ahasuerus wanted to show off Vashti because he considered her one of his possessions. Her physical beauty made her valuable in his sight. This is not true of God. In the wedding song of Psalm 45, in verse 11, it says, Our bridegroom is enthralled by our beauty. In Zephaniah 3.17, it tells us that he rejoices over us with singing. Yet none of us is truly beautiful until we are covered in Christ's beautiful righteousness. When we are, the king judges us beautiful, righteous in his sight. We become his possession, a treasured possession. Queen Vashti was not a treasured possession. She was merely a living trophy of King Ahasuerus' power and glory, only to be paraded in front of his royal guest. But there is one problem. Queen Vashti refuses to be put on display. Verse 12, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So who is this Queen Vashti who dared defy the king? The Bible tells us very little about her. The brief story here is the only mention of her in scripture. However, our, our friend, the Greek historian Herodotus tells us that she was more commonly known by her Greek name, Amestris. Jewish tradition and folklore tells us that Vashti was the daughter of the Babylonian king Belshazzar. On the night Belshazzar was killed, Vashti was captured by the conquering Persians and given to Xerxes, that is, King Ahasuerus, as a wife. Truly, she was a living trophy, a trophy of war. Jewish rabbis also taught that when King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before the king with her royal crown, it was a command that she wear the crown and nothing else. Even if that is not true, the king was asking Vashti to degrade herself to satisfy his drunken whim. She refuses to be put 
on display. It reveals a curious thing about Persian law, which was often said that it could not be revoked or repealed, but it sure could be refused. King Ahasuerus's power, his position, and all the laws that he decreed as king could not compel his bride to obey him. This is true for all of humankind. The law cannot and does not compel right or obedient behavior. Only love can do that. This is true for followers of Jesus. Obedience to God's commands is inspired by Christ's sacrificial love, not abusive royal decrees and the self-serving laws of sinful men. King Ahasuerus was not at all loving or considerate of his bride. Persian modesty required women to be veiled in public. It is also possible that Vashti was pregnant with her son Artaxerxes since he was born in 483 BC, the same year as this great feast. Artaxerxes reigned over the Persian Empire from 464 to 425 BC. Historically, only lim the only limits on the extent of authority exercised by the king's mother were set by the monarch himself. Many believe that once Esther was either dead or out of favor, Vashti, or a mistress, returned and wielded great power and influence over Artaxerxes' reign. But now let's get back to his daddy. Vashti refused to come to the king, and it earned his wrath. He was enraged. The scripture says he burned with anger. The same is true of God. When we reject him and his Savior, Jesus Christ, we earn his just wrath against sin. Against our disobedience to his righteous standard, we earn his wrath. When we reject him and his Savior, Jesus Christ, we have to pay our own sin debt, which means eternal death instead of eternal life. That is what the doctrine of the judgment of God teaches. All who reject Jesus Christ receive God's punitive judgment. Scripture describes punitive judgment as dreadful, so as to warn sinners to flee to Jesus Christ. Punitive judgments will be endured in a conscious condition and forever. Yet, obedience to God's commands results in evaluative judgment for those who trust in Jesus Christ. Believers are rewarded for all they have done to serve God and live faithfully as disciples of Jesus Christ. Believers do not refuse or disobey their king. Their obedience to all of God's commands and all God ordains is inspired by Christ's sacrificial love. Obedience to God's commands, it's a joy and a privilege for his treasured possession. It is, in fact, their only right and reasonable response. Our first truth is that obedience to God's commands is the only right and reasonable response of all who are his treasured possession. 
Have you said yes to the proposal of the King of Kings? Or are you still refusing to come to him? If you said yes to him, in what specific ways are you behaving as one who is his treasured possession? If you have not yet said yes to him, why are you still refusing to acknowledge that he is the king of kings? God loves his treasured possession with an everlasting and extravagant love. The bride of the bridegroom is cherished by him and protected by his good commands. If you are his, God loves you deeply. He delights in you. You make his mighty heart skip a beat. The only right and reasonable response to him, the one who laid his life down to make you his own treasured possession, is love-inspired obedience to his commands. We obey him, not because we have to, but because we want to. For those who instead reject him and his loving sacrifice, the repercussions are eternal. The consequences of Queen Vashti's refusal to obey her king illustrates this in our next division, Repercussions, Esther chapter 1, verses 13 through 22. Verses 13 through 14. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethmar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marish, Marsena, and Memekin, the seven princes of Persia and Medai, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. Now these verses tell us that the king had seven counselors, wise men. They are the ones who advised him on kingdom matters. The phrase, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom, tells us that these men had a right to approach the king's throne. The term wise men usually refers to astrologers who consulted the stars and used other forms of divination. The infuriated king and spurned husband seeks their counsel in verse 15. He asks, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. The satirical nature of the book of Esther is evident here as the king, who has just displayed all of his splendor, power, and glory in his magnificent kingdom, now has to consult experts on the matters of law and justice because he is powerless to control his own wife. The first response of the wise men is not wise or good. They blow the whole event wildly out of proportion instead of considering one wife's disobedience to her husband. They set their hair on fire, horrified at the thought of the kingdom-wide repercussions once all the women of the kingdom found out about Vashti's disobedience. 
In verses 16 through 18, Memucon, who is apparently the spokesman of the wise men, says, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Madai, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Oh my, what to do? Quick, write a law and make every wife obey her husband. The most comical thing about their response is that it makes Vashti's disobedience to the all-powerful king known to everyone. It is their edict that will be carried out through the vast 127-province kingdom through the Persian Pony Express. It is their edict that will be broadcast to all the kingdom people in every language of the kingdom, and not one person will miss this juicy, scandalous news. Their edict would cause all the women in the kingdom to think, hey, maybe I can tell my husband no. The not-so-wise wise men did not think about the repercussions of their edict. In verse 19, a royal order is issued that cannot be repealed. Vashti is stripped of her crown and her royal position, and she is banished. A new queen will be found. In verse 20, we learn that this edict includes the command for all women to honor their husbands high and low alike. How sad that the wisdom of the wise men was that this must be decreed. The opposite is true of the institution of marriage invented by God. In his book, Sacred Marriage, author Gary Thomas says that a giant thread runs throughout scripture comparing God's relationship to his people with the human institution of marriage. God intends for marriages to be rooted in mutual respect for one another as both bride and groom honor his commands. Obedience to one another is rooted in a mutual and often sacrificial love that reflects the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. Likewise, our obedience to God's commands is inspired by Christ's sacrificial love, not the laws and edicts of God, much less the laws and edicts of fallen men and women. King Ahasuerus's decree concerning Vashti and the women of his kingdom was petty and born of an angry, vindictive spirit. No one could challenge his authority, at least not without major repercussions. In contrast, King Jesus 
is moved by the needs of those he governs as king. And he's king of the universe. He is not moved or motivated by his own personal pride, fears, or anxieties, and not by his own desire for personal gain and adulation. Of him, Psalm 45, verses 6 through 7, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. When these verses are applied to Jesus, who is the son of David, the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, then the true and divine king of Israel emerges. He is the bridegroom, the messianic king who is exalted and anointed by God the Father. He is the just judge who rules with a scepter of justice. He always does what is exactly fair and right. One day, he will judge every human being with perfect justice. Those who reject him will be cast out from his holy presence and into the lake of fire, banished like Queen Vashti. She was banished by a self-centered, self-serving king. This is not so of God. His judgment is wise, just, and holy because he is wise, just, and holy. For those who receive him, God's judgment, it is unfailingly just, righteous, and perfect. And it proves that who we are and what we do, it matters. Furthermore, obedience to God's commands by the power of the Holy Spirit proves that we belong to him. That's our second truth. Obedience to God's commands by the power of the Holy Spirit proves that we belong to him. Which commands of God are you currently obeying? Can you list them? Do you know them? Which of his commands are you still disobeying and why? I love it when we use the Westminster Shorter Confession, uh, sorry, Westminster Shorter Catechism on the Ten Commandments in our time of confession in Sunday service. It makes God's commands so real and so relevant to my life. If you are a child of God, I encourage you to use questions and answers 42 through 81 of our Westminster Shorter Catechism in your own time with God. This practice is helpful to all who are serious about growing in holiness and walking in obedience to God's commands. However, the power of the Holy Spirit is also required. When God commanded Adam to walk in holiness and obedience, he failed. When God commanded Israel to walk in holiness and obedience, they failed. God commands us to walk in holiness and obedience, yet we fail again and again and again. Adam's only hope, Israel's only hope, and our only hope, was for God to provide one who could and would obey his holy standard 
on our behalf because they could not and we cannot. He did just that in the person of his son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father, walking in perfect holiness through complete obedience to his Father's commands. The only hope for lost sinners is repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ, the one who lived in complete obedience to his Father's commands and laid down his life for us so that through his death and resurrection, we might have life, a life liberated from the just judgment of God, a life liberated from the law and empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey all of God's good and loving commands. This does indeed prove that we belong to him. He is our father and we are his children. Even more, Jesus is our bridegroom, and the church, that is all true believers, is his beloved bride. When our wedding day arrives, which song will play as we dance with our bridegroom in glory? Unlike King Ahasuerus' forceful command for Vashti to come before him, Christ's bride will one day be led to the King of Kings in a procession of joy and laughter, making a grand entrance into the King's palace. She will be clothed in a dazzling wedding dress, lined and woven with gold. Revelation 19.8 says that it will be made of fine linen, bright and clean, representing the righteous acts of the saints. Unlike Vashti, this willing bride is head over heels in love with her bridegroom who sacrificed his very life for her. What a glorious day it will be for God's people to be led into the presence of Jesus. We will then hear the wedding song sung to the King of Kings. You see, Psalm 45, it is a wedding song. But it is not about the wedding. This song, it has a bride and a groom. But it is not about the two of them. It is a love song. But it is not about the love between Christ and the church. It is a love song to the Savior. Psalm 45 is all about Christ. The church is the singer wrapped up in the perfect, divine, extravagant, eternal, and sacrificial love of Jesus. His bride sings, saying, You are the most handsome of the Son of Men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. This bride makes it known that her greatest joy is to know him as her Lord and bow down before him in complete and holy surrender. Inspired by his sacrificial love, she walks with her beloved bridegroom in holiness and obedience forever and ever. For now, our obedience to God's commands is inspired by Christ's sacrificial love. Would you please pray with me?
O holy God and mighty King. You are our forever love. You are faithful even when we are not. You are just in all of your ways, in all of your judgments. O Father, forgive us for seeking your hand and not your face. Come and empty us, Father. Holy Spirit, fill us with your fire. Give us your desires and hold us close to you. Holy Spirit, reveal your glory to us. Nothing else can or ever will satisfy us. We want more and more and more of you and you alone. Continue to sanctify us until that day when we finally see you face to face and dance with you in glory. This we ask in the name of our glorious bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Amen.